Well, guys, it is an honor to have you both here at Redeemer. Um, I believe we are in a, so far, mostly nonviolent civil war in our country, and you two are generals in this war. And so I want to really thank you for that. Also, uh, it's an honor for me to be on this panel with you. So thank you very much. Finally, I'm honored that all of you are here. Um, most of you are Christians, but many of you are not. And, uh, but what I want you to see is that we're all on the same side of an ideological civil war. And, it's and it is a great thing to see that kind of unity. Uh, it's a good day when people with profound differences can come together and fight a common enemy which just happens to be the same way that this entire country was founded at the, to start with, right? So um, I hope that uh, God uses this conversation to help all of us here and really to advance what's true and good and right in this war. So I've got a ton of questions here from myself, from my friends, and so uh, let's jump in. Let me start with this one. Um, Come on, social justice, which three-headed monster of race, gender, sexual preference, it's just about justice. <laughs> it's just about fighting discrimination, right? What's so bad about that? <laughs> yeah, flip it up. Testing, hello. Oh yeah, so one wishes. Um, it's just, yeah, we talked about that yesterday, of course. So it is not just though, right? And so when you start to look at the idea kind of in general of something that re resembles social justice, just to be kind of like very generous and fair, uh, because that term has never really been a good term, but to be very generous and fair, we do actually want fairer societies. We do actually want, um, not to have people be oppressed in, you know, legitimately oppressed. We don't want them to be marginalized or excluded based on things that they really had no control over. We, we, we don't want those things. Um, and so we do want a fairer, more generally just society in a social sense, but this is a matter of means and goals right, means and ends. And so their end is to enforce a social contract where we all agree on their definition of what constitutes social justice. And right. therefore, somebody gets to pick for us what the correct interpretation of how we're gonna deal with race is. For example, you know, in a biblical sense, you might appeal to neither Jew nor Greek or whatever else, you may have whatever reasons that you believe that racism is against the idea of biblical justice, but that's not going to be good enough because you have to have it on their terms. And their terms are the higher terms, which have other bases. And then the means, of course, are that they're gonna tell you, uh, we know the ends, that we're going to follow their rules, and the means are going to be that you're going to have to follow their prescription for how you engage in that. You're gonna to have to be shamed into, as it's termed. If a lot of people knew when they were signing up for anti-racism, what Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo were actually telling you, those are two of the kind of chief prophets of anti-racism as a faith. If, the, if you actually knew what they were telling you and you said, well, you want to be against racism, right? So you want to be an anti-racist, you would have a completely different perspective on this. Um, of course you want to be against racism. I think that's a, almost a given now. But Robin DiAngelo describes it as a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism in which no one has ever done. I don't think you were signing up for a lifelong program of social activism. Ibram Kendi explains that, you know, the only remedy when he's describing what anti-racism means on page 19 of how to be an anti-racist, he tells you that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, and the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So to be an anti-racist, you must discriminate but I don't think you were signing up for a program that involves the means of intentional discrimination according to somebody else's program that says what discrimination is okay and what discrimination is not okay. So when we start, start talking about social justice in those regards, um, it's not just what they say it is. That's the Mott rather than the Bailey. When we really understand what justice represents though, as they've modified the language over the past couple hundred years, I mentioned yesterday very clearly in our, our panel that equity rebrands socialism. It's, a, it's an administered economy that redistributes shares so that citizens are made equal. The Marxist belief about socialism, and we'll talk about this, I'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, 
Marx believed that history progresses in these six stages from primitive communism to global universal communism. And stage six is universal communism, but stage five is its simulation in state-enforced socialism. So social equity being enforced upon you in the name of achieving social justice, if you understand that it has Marxist roots, tells you they're administering socialism that will spontaneously turn into communism eventually while they're administering social equity so that it will spontaneously turn into social justice when it becomes automatic. And now you see that you're being asked to participate in a very different program than just wanting a fairer society. It's fairer according to the social contract they're trying to force on everybody, which turns out to be this Marxist program where equity, the redistribution by administers, will turn into spontaneous ground-up belief because that's just the way that man thinks now where justice means that everybody is acting perfectly equitably in the common good according to their definition all the time. So it's not just. There's a lot tucked into that that gets wallpapered over with the just. Absolutely. It is... Um it, it, it's irony that it's called the social justice movement because it is, at its core, antisocial, and it is institutionalizes injustice, and yet it's called the social justice movement. Ridiculous. So, so because of that, is there any hope of racial reconciliation using critical race theory? Well, first of all, I would say that the thing that we want to pursue is not racial reconciliation. Right there, you're, you're going to start slipping into some collectivist uh, definitions of what we need to do. It's, we don't have the white race against the black race, against the Latino race, and I'm someone who is both, uh, I guess you could say Latino and white, and I'm married to uh, someone who is Chinese. So I guess there's all sorts of reconciliation that has to happen both internally and then with, within my family structure itself, if that's the case. Hearts reconcile not races. And so as soon as we start getting into uh, a collectivist definition of what needs to occur, then that means that it's expanding into a wider paradigm that somehow needs some sort of guidance from those that are the popes of black people, the popes of white people, and the popes of Latinos. That's not what needs to occur, where they all decide, hey, we're reconciled now, here's a language we need to use, and now we're good, but you just need to follow this program. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to distribute equitably. We're going to be handling these things from an inclusive standpoint. We're going to be making sure that diversity is occurring everywhere that it's needing to occur. And that's how things are going to be happening within our, um, let's say, within the, the, the structure of our, of our faith, the structure within our corporations, the structure within our whatever. So you want to get away from that language and to say, well, if you're a Christian, let's start doing it the Christian way. Um, and we'll start reconciling first with God, right? So that's the first reconciliation that needs to happen. And then the second re reconciliation actually needs to happen with your brother or sister. But there's a pattern by which we have to do that. And it seems like no one wants to follow that pattern. So oh, that's, very, that's very helpful. So James, if I'm like some many parents here, they sent their kids off to college. Their kids came back after a semester, completely bought into the ideologies, destroyed their, their family. Other parents have kids who are going into, into, into schools here in the area, um, or whether it's a business, whether it's a church. If you're a typical Marxist, how do you Marxify a group of people? What, what do you do? What, what, is your, what is your tactic within an organization? Because some people here own businesses, they run schools, they, 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 run, they run other organizations. So I'm, I'm trying to help them think through, okay, if, if this starts to happen in my business, in my school, at my church, what, what do I need to look for? Well, if everybody go get a cup of coffee, because it's going to take a couple hours. Because <laughs> it, it turns out that the, in the modern uh, conception of this movement, which is not the Marxism of, say, 1940, um, that... It's all done according to the individual context. This was the, the Marxist educator, Paulo Freire's big uh, inter innovation, sorry, that uh, each intervention has to occur within the given context that you find it. So in different places, you actually see it kind of differently, what's happening to your college student or to your kids in schools, what's happening to your, um, you know, in your company, what's happening in, say, uh, discipline like mathematics or physics that you hope and pray and falsely think cannot be turned, uh, but will be and is being turned. Um, it's a little bit different in each thing, but it's sort of similar. Um, Michael actually gave the broad picture outline for how you change individuals to create that bottom up, which is that you 
uh, induce the, the vulnerability and give them a resolution to the vulnerability through cult doctrine. That cult doctrine then makes them feel a little better, and then you love bomb them, heap them with praise for doing that. And the schools will this will often take the, the the form of that they'll talk about sexualities and sexual issues, and then the kids who obviously show signs of discomfort will be invited to a special group after school, the Gay Straight Alliance meetings or whatever, and then there they'll celebrate the fact, oh, look how great you are, it's so good that you came, blah, 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 and they kind of suck them in. That's one of the methods that you'll see in the school. Uh, colleges and universities have been using the vulnerability tool for a very long time. It's one of the first things I recognized that led me to believe that a cult indoctrination with social justice was happening was young women in particular who have a million reasons to feel vulnerable leaving their parents home for the first time, going to campus where there is this whole kind of you know, at least rumor, if you want, or specter of rape culture, especially at the fraternities or whatever else, they've been warned about. And this new kind of also, you know, well, we're young, we're away from home, we can experiment kind of attitude that's underneath it. So it's very easy to make young women, 17, 18, 19-year-old girls and women, sexually uncomfortable. And then so what do you tell them? Well, there's this rampant rape culture here on campus, and here's these points of evidence about it, come to our feminist meeting and you can do something about it by becoming an activist against rape culture as a feminist. And you suck them into the same vulnerability exploitation model. So that's one of the tools within the educational domain itself. I mentioned in the panel yesterday the, the generative themes method that Freire introduced, and you'll see that kind of everywhere. Um, what you'll see happening with the generative themes is whether it's a math class, whether it's a reading class, whether it's a social studies class or whatever, you're going to see these race issues, you're going to see these gender and sex issues, you're going to see these sexuality issues introduced, and you're going to use that to generate a different kind of conversation and start dragging people along. College students are really easy to drag in this direction because they're idealistic, they don't really know how the world works, and they can be convinced uh, that the world that they're just stepping into, there's a massive transition from home to adulthood uh, taking place there. Cult leaders, by the way, used to hang out by airports. And the reason was because people who are moving to a new city or people who are transitioning to a new context in life turn out to be the easiest to exploit and bring into a new crackpot ideology. And so you kind of get this kind of program going on there, but the generative themes method is going to do it with both college students and little kids by introducing the idea and then making the point of their lessons, whether it's a statistics class that focuses, brings up every statistical example. Yeah, they're really learning some statistics. They're learning how to calculate, you know, means and medians and standard deviations and understand those, but every example happens to be about, you know, poverty and race and how they correlate and all of these things. And then so you, now you're kind of constantly in the background and increasingly in the foreground talking about that. And we're seeing that in schools, like in, in high schools uh, and across the United States already. Same thing in reading or whatever else. So that's a method. How you take over a discipline like mathematics is that you start going after the sociology of the discipline first. You say, well, look at the culture, look at the department culture, look at the conference culture. It's patriarchal, it's racist, blah, blah, blah. Mathematics has a race problem. Where? At the conferences. Why? Because we don't see statistical parity in terms of the number of people represented, yada, yada, yada. This would work in a church as well. And then you take that step one, the culture that we have here. So you remember the Trinity culture is one of the three triangles. The culture that we have here is part of the problem. Then we move one step around the dialectic to what? Well, the culture probably came from the ideas that this discipline traffics in. So the, the church, the gospel itself might be teaching white things or mathematics might have been organized in a white way in the first place. And so you then get to attack the discipline itself or whatever by moving from the sociology and saying the sociology of this discipline and its history is the result of the ideas that are generated in there in the first place, and then you can attack a discipline. So it moves in different ways in different contexts, but that's the actual thing, is it's going to, and that's what I said with the vampire thing yesterday, it's gonna look for the context that fits. In a church, it's gonna speak church speak. In uh, a Catholic church, it's gonna speak mass speak. In a physics department, it's gonna speak physics speak, or actually however physics department, sociology, how they speak to each other, what the cultural and social norms are there. And so it's gonna move in different contexts in different places like that. Uh, I wanted to actually add a piece, though, to what Mike said about the so-called racial reconciliation question. Just to point out where Mike said immediately that you're already thinking in the seeds of, of collectivist thinking at that point. I wanna point out that Mark said that 
and he said this very clearly, that the true understanding that man has to realize is that he's a member of a class, right? They call it class consciousness. And so the class becomes the thing that you, is most relevant to you. That's where you find your awareness. You find that echoed at book length from the cultural Marxists, like George Lukács, for example, who wrote an entire book about what class consciousness really represents and how you come about it. It's called History and Class Consciousness. But then we fast forward now, not from 1923 when he wrote that book, or 19, you know, 1848 when Marx was writing. We fast forward now all the way to... Um, the present day. And we just saw, for example, with the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, and that obviously didn't go the way the left seemed to have wanted it to. And what you think, why is this political? And the reason was because the Me Too thing was on it. And what were the articles that they were writing is, and I kid you not, this decision hurts women as a class. If you read the key paper from 1991, introducing intersectionality in a big way from Kimberly Crenshaw called Mapping the Margins, she opens the paper by explaining that what you have to actually understand is that what feminists and black activists had realized by the point of 1991 is that the, the, the spread out voices of a few people who are actually experiencing injustices that probably could be legitimately identified and adjudicated, they have no power because they're individuals. They only find their power when they combine into the voices of many millions. And when they start thinking of themselves and locate themselves, in terms of the class that they find themselves in. So intersectionality is a theory of locating yourself within a class, an individual that belongs to various identity group class identities. So Michael is exactly right. So critical race theory, all of these things, by the way, I know it's, I'm dipping back to the other question, cannot create anything like social reconciliation, which we'll use as a broad term, because they force people to think in terms of divisive identity categories in order to achieve class goals. The social contract is written within the class first and then is meant to blow out. So, no, it's inherently divisive. It cannot achieve those goals. But what you'll find to address the question you just asked, what context are you going to find it in? Um, it's basically literally everything. They're going to screw with the curriculum. They're going to screw with the social environment. They're going to screw with vulnerability at every stage. They're going to tell people that the true point of learning mathematics is to learn statistics to achieve social justice. It's creeping in by literally every means they can find. Um, and if you are not psychologically, and I'll even say spiritually robust enough to repel that, you actually should avoid the contexts where that's happening. It's actually not in your best interest to go uh, so don't drink poison unless you know how to metabolize it, is, or what I would basically tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, can I just put in a, jo a joiner on that as well? I think one thing that we have to work, work to understand within the church is that we're very susceptible at times to, um, to somehow be accepting of whatever the new is. I remember something that Dr. R.C. Sproul said to me a number of years ago. He says, well, you always know you're in trouble if it ever has neo or new in front of it. And uh, what he was referring to at the time in our conversation was the new perspective on Paul. And so just like that, you have something that's new, that's something that seems scholarly, especially if it's something that seems to have maybe patches on its sleeve and it's being introduced to you with an English accent. Then all of a sudden you go, oh, well, that must be scholarly. So it must be good. Um, and the same thing I think can happen from a scholarly perspective of people that you already see as authorities, people that you already respect a lot of their really good research that they've done, or they, maybe they've done a commentary that you really think is fantastic. So all of a sudden they have this level of authority, then they're bringing something else to you, and you're saying, well, they were right on that, they've gotta be right on this. And so I, I think we've lost, and just to be very simple and biblical about it, you've lost the ability to be a Berean. And so it, what we'll do sometimes, I think, is that we will, uh, we will look at those outside of our camps of faith, right? whether those that are, let's say, charismatic or those that are in other, um, let's say, evangelical groups that are not of the same doctrinal standards that we are, and we'll immediately go hard on them, and we'll have conferences about them and everything else, but those within our own camp that have actually come and poisoned the well with Marxism will be easy on them, and we have to actually even be harder on those that have done this, because what they've done is first they've elicited your support and your trust, and then what they did is they betrayed you. So you have to start thinking about it from, in those terms. So we're definitely gonna come back to that. Um, but James, I wanna piggyback off of something you just said. So if I'm a leader of an organization, a principal, a president of a college or seminary, a pastor, business owner, 
and I'm interviewing somebody, what are some questions that I can ask them? Because I can't say, hey, we, we don't believe in CRT here. You don't believe in CRT here, either, do you? No? Okay, great. We, we can't do that because built into this whole thing is to lie, to advance the propaganda. So what is it? What, what are some ways to kind of ferret this out of a person and to listen for, to know, okay, I've got this kind of person in front of me? So, um, especially in the interview context, it's, it's a lot less difficult than you probably think. And you don't have to get very tricky about it. You actually just take kind of the issues and just ask them to open-endedly explain what they think about them. What do you think about being an anti-racist? How do you see that? How does it work? And when they explain it, then you have to apply, I love it when I get to do this in a church, a discernment to decide, are they saying something that sounds like it would have made sense five years ago, or because all of the politics everybody advances now are less than five years old, uh, or are they advancing something that sounds like they got it off of the back of a Black Lives Matter pamphlet, uh, you know, early in 2021? And so, you know, you just straight up can ask, you know, it's a hot issue in society and culture. It comes up a lot. Um, obviously, we've got our own, you know, concerns with it in the organization. What's your position? What do you, how do you see anti-racism, for example, that everybody talks about? And what do you think it means? And what do you think it implies? And what do you think a company should be doing with that? And then just listen to what they say. Um, that's a very easy way to ferret that kind of thing out. Uh, it, you don't have to be deceptive. You don't have to be tricky. You just kind of bluntly ask them, I want to hear your opinions about these particular topics. Uh, there, rather than asking particular questions, there are certain kind of words you really want to watch out for. If they mention words like inclusion, equity, belonging, they probably won't say transform a lot unless they're already in power. But if you see that word, you should be paying attention. Uh, you know, you start to hear these kind of giveaway words. If they talk in terms of privilege, you know, then you can identify that these people are kind of caught in this view of the world. Uh, but the simple questions are actually just to ask them, what is your view of the given issue? Uh, you can also ask them, you know, do you know, do you think that organizations have a uh, requirement to do more than, than say that they maybe are already doing and see what they say to that um, and what role might you see yourself playing in that? They might, you might lose some good candidates that try to like think that they're sucking up to you by giving you the right answer, but you probably don't want those people anyway um, for other reasons. Uh, they may not actually believe it, but think you do and therefore want to suck up to you, but you actually don't want those people anyway because they're not going to be great uh, in these positions. So you can ask those kinds of questions and just listen to them. Let them respond kind of open-endedly uh, and see what they do. Or you can call them a groomer. No, I'm just kidding. Don't call them groomers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. So, Mike... Um is the social justice movement, social justice ideology, it's, is it an in-house debate like, like baptism and end times views? Well, no, because it's actually something that affects all of us as a society. And so it's pulling the church into a wider discussion in terms of how these things need to be worked out within our, our society, within our nation. So what they're basically trying to do, and please understand this and take this the right way, I hope, is that this is a political move disguised as a theological move. That's what this is. And so the, the entire intention of this is to try to involve the church with what the state would actually like to accomplish. So the state, and what I mean by that is not necessarily all the conservatives that serve in Congress or as your governor or whatever the case may be, but are those that actually want to take us towards this utopian global citizen type of understanding of things. Because it's not just... And we always just think of it from an individual standpoint when we say social justice. But we have to understand that many of the things that you see that are happening around you are also the result of looking at it from an international way of approaching social justice. You know, is there justice that's being done by the United States pulling out of Afghanistan, leaving billions of dollars of armament there, and leaving at the 11th hour with people hanging onto tires trying to get out? you know, in, in the most embarrassing way possible. Well, that might not be something that you would tactically do or strategically do if you have an intention of making sure that you have other nations that have confidence in the United States militarily to do what's necessary to make sure that we fulfill our promises. Well, that's the whole point. Because the whole point of what you're doing is you're actually creating an issue where people are saying, well, the United States is falling. 
it's declining, it's being disrupted and dismantled. So the same thing that you are trying to do from an international standpoint, you're trying to pull the church into doing these things that, that are supporting these things, that are supporting this language. One thing that I've always tried to point out, John, that's been happening at the same time that we talk about critical race theory, maybe you've noticed this, is that as they were talking about critical race theory, as they were talking about how the fact that we need to do better and using all the language that's being used everywhere else in regards to these issues, is it would also demean uh, the idea of being patriotic or patriotic or loving your nation or loving the rights that you have through the Constitution. So somehow, um, wanting to preserve the United States and the freedoms that we have is a bad thing. So this always accompanied the talk, and the idea was was to use and is to use the church as a wedge between people doing the right thing in, in their interest to preserve sovereignty, to preserve the fact that you want to have your children to have the freedoms and liberties that, that you currently enjoy a generation from now. So the church in many ways has been pulled down this road. There are people within the church that have been acting in, in a way that would continue us down this kind of position that folks, let's say at the World Economic Forum, and I'll get into that tomorrow, uh, started pulling us down. Uh, but as well, they're doing things from a position that weakens us totally as a nation and starts driving us towards ideals that, look, a generation ago, you would have never have thought about things this way. You would have been thinking, look, we need to preserve the freedoms that we have in America. We need to do the right things. We need to teach the right doctrines. We need to preserve the faith. So there's a sense of preservation that is in the mindset of people that has been changed to a, to a mindset of transformation. Do you see what I'm saying? So now all of a sudden, your mind and everything is thinking, well, how can we do better at this? How can we change this? And how can we fix either questions of justice or whatever else? So the church is being pulled into this. And what we have to do, and whether it happens from the pews up, um, is that we have to say, this far, no further. We need to go back. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is that the, the, it's okay to say nothing and be nice to those who bring in the heresy. Yeah. But it is your obligation to call out anybody saying, hey, wait a minute, why are, that, that's heresy. Those are the ones that we can attack. Those are the ones that, it's, that everybody feels right attacking because, hey, they're, look, they're not winsome enough. They're not nice enough. And these people are so nice over here, even though they're bringing in heresy. Right. And so what you see is a transition from a religion of what? Of logos to a faith Bezos. of pathos. And so what John is saying is correct, is that all of a sudden it's about how you approach these things. And if you're calling out, quote, a brother, and they will always refer to the person who brought in the heresy as the brother, and you are someone who is being irascible, you are someone who's being, you know, you're out of control and in the flesh and so forth. But think about it from this perspective. For what, about six years now, They've been going before congregations all over the United States, guilting people about their immutable attributes, guilting people about the fact that they're part of a capitalistic society. And now when you're coming back and saying, we know what you're doing, we know how you're doing it, we saw how you brought this in four years ago, and they're saying, memory hole, you need to forget all of that. You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of approach, you know. And somehow, whomever it was that brought that in needs to stay in power, that they need to stay with their leadership position, even though what they basically did, and I don't want to be too harsh, but they prostituted the church for this entire thing. And, and somehow we're supposed to look the other way. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I think that the, the voice that uh, Pastor John, Pastor Kyle, and the other brothers that are on staff here, the, the voice that they've brought to this thing has been uh, very unusual. And I think you're blessed within the Phoenix area of having maybe three or four churches that are standing up to this in a way like maybe you're lucky to, sorry, lucky, maybe you're blessed to have one church in a metro area that might be standing up that everybody's trying to get to, right? <laughs> but that church might not have, you know, Awana's children programs. They might, have a, they might not have the giant water slide that you like at your other church and, you know, and that kind of thing. But they're churches that are just saying, we're going to be faithful. You know, so it's the same thing I think you'd find within education too. 
You know, it's like, where can you find a place like James Lindsay where you can just learn math now without having to have math involve social justice where two plus two has to equal five as opposed to four? I mean, you know. Right. Well, it equals what they say it equals, but... Um that's the point, is that four is a hegemonic answer that maintains power and people's advantage, but it could be whatever other answer gives somebody else power. But um, that's actually, I only have a very small point I want to add that connects to everything you just said, Mike, which is that, you know, is this an internal debate? And obviously this isn't my place, but I will say, why is this exact same debate happening in a mathematics department where the goal of mathematics, just like the goal of the gospel, is being reevaluated? Re to forward social justice, where we can, maybe we could see that, well, okay, you know, you read different parts of Jesus's message in and out of context or whatever, and maybe you get that idea. But when you get to mathematics, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, something seems really wrong. And if math doesn't do it for you, go to engineering. The goal of engineering is not to advance social justice. The goal of engineering is to make sure the plane doesn't crash, to make sure that the bridge doesn't fall, to make sure that the thing that you're building works, whether you have to put a lot of duct tape in WD-40 or not. <laughs> so... I would just, I, it doesn't answer the question, but I would draw people's attention to the fact that the exact same question of whether or not you're preserving the intention of the thing, whether it's the gospel, whether it's engineering, whether it's mathematics and its goals, whether it's physics, whether it's education more broadly, are, is, why is that being subverted for exactly the same thing in, and it doesn't matter what it is? Math, physics, engineering, the gospel, you can't find something where it, the knitting group Michael mentioned in his talk, you can't find something that's not being asked to repurpose for exactly this same agenda. And when you mention the word heresy, John, of course, you know, that's at the heart of this. You won't find very many people to come out and admit it, that they're serving a transforming, becoming God instead of a, a God that, that I am the I am, you know, that, which is, that's pretty squarely... Uh, there in the scripture, not very confusing. I think that's one of the less confusing parts of the Bible from looking at it from the outside, uh, that God is this eternal thing that doesn't change and is you know internally perfect versus something that has to become to understand what it really is and you have to use certain perspectives to do it. And uh, you, know, you can't possibly understand unless you have the master-slave dialectic of excluded voices being bragged. That's not merely an internal debate, in my opinion, I don't know that I can answer that question because I don't fully know how those debates play out, but I think it's, when you see it applied to everything in exactly the same way, you have to say, wait, this is something bigger than a debate about what scripture actually indicates. This is something far bigger because why else would engineering, mathematics, physics, education, knitting group, et cetera, all be being asked to be remade to the exact same thing if it was merely a debate about the vagaries of what scripture implies about how we should treat one another. Yeah. So when, what's happening here is that what we do, like even having the two of you here is called divisive, that we are being divisive against other churches in this area by calling it out. Cause I mean, typically in general, when it comes to churches, you've got the pro woke, you've got the anti woke, and then you've got the non woke, the guys who are in the mushy middle, don't want to say anything, just keep going on, go with the flow, not, and, and not rock the boat yet, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. We being anti woke, me going, standing on the stage in the other room and hammering against this podcast against this, um, then, then now, now we're, we're divisive. My response is, no, is it the people who bring in the heresy who are divisive or the people calling out the heresy? Are they the ones being divisive? And, and the answer is the ones who bring in the heresy are the ones who are divisive, but their, their tactic is then to call someone who calls it out, see, they're being divisive. When really you brought the heresy in in the first place, you're the one that caused the cracks between the different churches, between the, the coalition or the, the togetherness that we had. You brought it in by bringing in heresy because this is not an in-house debate. This is a different religion posing as Christianity. And the faster we see this, the faster we will have clarity on how to respond. Amen. I completely agree with that. Beautifully said. I'll give you a little uh, context. Of course, my one of the things I say all the time now is that, that all of this stuff that's broadly Marxist in its flavor inverts reality. 
and this is actually a tactic. You can listen or go read the, the testimony of the defected communist, Bella Dodd, uh, back in 53, she, she testified to the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which has now become the House Judiciary Committee. Um, <laughs> and she explained that they always dress themselves up in, in nice sounding terms. They come in and they provoke, and then people come back with a backlash, and they use that backlash, this is a dialectical process, they induce the backlash, then they use the backlash, and they say, well, that's a fascist response, we're the true anti-fascists. And so they give themselves a nice name. Well, that was a racist response, we're the true anti-racists. But I just wanna give you a story that you may not know that will shed, I think, a little bit of context on this. This is the story, and this either happened in 1985 or 86, and I say that not because I don't know, because I didn't do my homework, because I found one source that says it was in 85, and another source by the same author says in 86, so I don't trust her memory, um, and her name is Kimberly Crenshaw. But it also doesn't matter whether it was 85 or 86. It was at the first critical legal studies conference where they decided to bring in what became a critical race theory contingent. Critical race theory did not get named until 1989, so this was before it gained its name. And what they had decided was that there were within the critical legal studies movement, which is already a neo-Marxist approach to law that was happening in legal studies, uh, they decided that this huge super left, super progressive movement was gonna, they agitated into being asked to allow to have a, a conference or a, a panel at their conference, which had now attained over a thousand attendees to have uh, race in, in its intersections with the law in a critical fashion brought in. And literally the people that held this panel got up on the stage, they took their microphone, and the first thing they said is, listen, the critical legal studies movement has a whiteness problem. It has a white supremacy problem. It's reproducing whiteness, and we need you to look into your heart and figure out how you're reproducing white supremacy and racism, and we need to interrogate the racism in this movement that's excluded us up to this point. And then, of course, the whole thing went to shambles because everybody started these super progressive people who, you know, would blanch at being called racist, whether they are or not, um, and thought that they were doing super not racist and super anti-racist progressive work in the law were outright accused of being racist by this group that came in. Now, who would you say was the one who was being divisive? But what do you think happened? This whole squabble breaks out. They said this was a very divisive panel. Critical legal studies movement basically gets rammed into the ground on accusations of racism, and three, four years later, the critical race theory movement emerges out of the ashes. And so you can see a pattern presented there that I've seen happen from my own experience when I was... Uh, productive over 10 years ago in the new atheism movement. I watched that happen, but the issue was sexism. I've seen that happen in corporations. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen this exact same, so you're asking how does it work its way in? Well, this is a different kind of thing. This is one of the ways that it takes over an institution. It brings the division in. When the division arises, it says that the, div the division is caused by the people who are saying, no, we're not doing this. Those are the ones being divisive, and their stupid rationale is if we all just went along with it, then it wouldn't be divisive. If you just followed our orders, there would be no division. And that's their upside down inverted logic. But you can hear where the provocation is coming from. They're just very skilled at doing a type of provocation that actually has a strategic name in, um, what's it called, political warfare. It's called mid-level violence. Mid-level violence is I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. So either you sit there and you're like, feel like a jerk trying to just like ignore it, which is super impossible after a while and annoying, and you basically, um, you know, lose. You voluntarily lose by not acting, or you're like, whack, and you slap the guy's hand down, oh my God, you hit me, is the next thing. So mid-level violence is just violent enough to where it provokes a reaction, and either they lose by giving in, you just go along with whatever they said, or you overreact as they frame it, and you're the fascist now, you're the divisive one. Um, but it is, in fact, divisive to their movement to call out their movement and to identify them as people who are trying to divide because it will take them off. It, it, you think about like when you get by, bit by a mosquito, you typically don't feel it till later. If you've ever, I've not had this pleasure yet, but apparently if you ever have a leech, you find the leech, but you never felt the leech. I've had ticks, you never feel the tick bite you, you never even feel it crawl on you. It's kind of an amazing creature. Parasites always work this way, right? 
and I'm not being Amen. flippant. I called it vampires yesterday. This is Gnosticism in general is a parasitic movement. It is latched onto Christianity. It is latched onto science. It is latched. It will latch onto anything that it can and assert itself as the one true authority. And then when you try to pull it off. It's, oh, you're abusing me, you're abusing me, you're abusing me. And so I would say that the division is being produced by the provocateur. And they are very skilled at doing so, and then framing out the reaction in a way where they're accusing everybody else of being divisive, uh, divisive of the effect of the ability of the parasite to stay attached to its host. Exactly. And this, this leads to another question, because it seems that once this is infected an organization, there are two responses that it seems that people are having. One is to say, hey, kick them out, call them out, kick them out as soon as possible. That is what they will do to you if they get power, number one. Or number two, it's be strategic, play the long game, don't call them out, don't hurt the institution, keep the unity, don't rock the boat, you'll lose the moderates, befriend the social justice radicals and false teachers. So there, there, it seems to be there are two sides going on right now. Mike, how would you how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, first of all, and look, I don't think any of us came along and said, "Hey, what we want to do is disrupt," you know, everything that we have built for what for the past four hundred years, you know, especially within the church, and start raising that down to the ground. It actually was them that came in and said, "No, what we're going to do." is we're going to infiltrate and take over all of your organizations, all of your denominations, all of your parachurch organizations, and they must be taken down this road. Meanwhile, institutions, as you already stated before, were either along for the ride or were silent. Well, so what that means is there really were no watchmen on the wall anymore. And so if, if that meant that some of us that were you know, doing business with them or involved with them had to start speaking up, we had to start speaking up and starting the fires. I think at this point what you can say is this. The institutions that either participated in this or the institutions that didn't say anything about this until basically I pushed them to, um, those institutions, you need to look at the structures of those institutions. You need to either fire the people that are currently there because they didn't do anything about it in the first place. And you need to replace them with people that are faithful you know, so you don't necessarily have to get rid of the institutions. You have to get rid of, and I hate to say this and use it as a pejorative term, but termites that have come within and are eating the actual fabric or the, the framework of the institutions in themselves where they're going to crumble eventually. You know, and that's one of the whole things about this. Either they, they become stalwarts for the, for the revolution, the ideological revolution, or they will fall apart themselves. So you really have to reclaim those institutions, or it's important that you dismantle them right now and start new ones, which I know a lot of maybe new seminaries, maybe new organizations that are being started that are going to say, we're going to start with the right framework. We're not going to budge on this. But it, again, it all really comes down to one thing. And I, I don't want to get too far out there, but we're going to need to talk about this. The reason why all this is happening, folks, when it comes to be with critical race theory, with social justice, with all these other things, radical feminism within the church, all within the last five to 10 years, it all has to do with ESG, environmental, social, and governments in terms of that being our new system, our new credit system. As we go to new monetary instruments, as our entire systems are reset, they wanna make sure that they are on the other side of the great transformation and that they continue. That's why this is happening. It's always been the reason. And the reason I, that I know that is because I helped it happen 10, 12 years ago. That's why. I'm not making it up. So we have to somehow be able to say no on all fronts, outside of the church, inside the, uh, inside the church, and also within the rest of the society. So if I can jump in real quick, I want to tell you about an Arizona story. Um, but... Before I tell you about the Arizona story, I don't, we're already going to get in trouble because it's going to go out, it's going to get clipped, and it's going to be like, Michael Fallon called them termites, James Lindsay called them parasites. To my knowledge, they've never called themselves parasites, and they've never called themselves termites. However, two professors at Arizona State University in 2016 oh, yes. published a paper where they called themselves viruses. Women's Studies as a Virus, that's the title of the paper. And let me describe exactly, because this is going to answer your question, what do you do? They said that the ideal metaphor to describe their approach, I'm not kidding, is the virus. And in fact, they give three examples of viruses that are ideal examples of what they're talking about. HIV, 
Ebola, and SARS. They say that we should operate this way. They go on to say that there are other viruses, such as HPV, that cause cancer. But they say, and I, I almost said a bad word in the church. Thank you for not. I poop you not. <laughs> so you, heard, you said the bad word in your head, haha. <laughs> they say that viruses that cause cancer are good because they represent true transformative change. They say that usually you think of viruses as killing the organism if they're allowed to run amok. So there's an immune system that controls them. They say the conservatives are in fact the immune system. But this is a different kind of virus for them than all the other viruses in the world. And it will actually benefit the body and the virus to suppress the immune system, hence the comparison to HIV. They go on to say that the way that the virus works is that you train people, say they give the example of biology undergraduate students in a college, probably at ASU, which is where this paper was written and they were thinking about it. They say that you train the biology student by having them take some women's studies classes or it could be more generally critical race classes or whatever else. And you bring this ideology into them and then you send them out when they graduate into biology departments where they go to get a, a graduate degree, into laboratories where they get a job. We could say you train them in the seminary and send them into a, into a church as an associate or assistant pastor or whatever. And then what they do is they bring the ideology into the institution they colonize and infect it from within to spread it. And they said, this is the ideal metaphor. So let's not call them termites. Let's not call them parasites. Let's call them the sub-living quasi-organism that is actually the kind of prototype of a parasite, viruses, which they openly call themselves. But then you hear the model. Is the answer, in fact, to go along and get along, to play the long game and let the virus run unchecked because it's good for the body and the virus? No, of course it's not. What's good is for the immune system to come into action, to avoid overreaction of the cytokine storm we all learned about with the COOF <laughs> that can kill the patient, to avoid the overreaction, but the immune system needs to come into action, take decisive action, and remove the infectious agent, which, again, I'm not calling them an infection. They called themselves an infection, right. so I'm comfortable doing it. It is their own description for themselves. Not only their own. The ideal metaphor to describe us, they said, is the virus. So that gives you your answer. What do you do? Well, if you see it as a viral infection, as they described it, if you take their metaphor, it is a viral infection of your church, of your, of your convention, of your institution, then are you going to let the virus run unchecked or are you going to have the immune system flare up and do what it needs to do to suppress the virus and cure the body? That's very helpful. So Mike, what should leaders in an organization do with those who were once with us, maybe even leaders of us, and are still with us on many things, but who contributed to the social justice virus in the institutions but who now want to come back in or others are wanting to bring them back into platforms of influence. Tell me what you mean by uh, the contributed to. What do you uh, want to well, be more specific? Um, they either publicly or privately um, did just what James was talking about with the virus. They opened the door for the virus to get in. They hired the people. They platformed the people. Or they actually themselves in less, less viewed, less popular, less known uh, situations promoted the virus. Right. Um, and now, but, but they were also trusted. They were also people that were platformed by other ministries, given clout, given influence, given trust, really. Like you said, the watchmen. Um, what, what, do, what, what should leaders do now that some of them are trying to get back in, others are saying we, shouldn't, we should let them back in? How should that be responded to? Well, I think uh, we, we have to look back in church history first. And as well, I think that we have a book, as Tom Askell keeps on referring to in his race for the Southern Baptist Convention president. Um, the book is very clear about what you do in these kind of situations. Uh, it seems like we don't want to follow that. So somehow we want to turn a blind eye and pretend that 2012, 2012 to 2020 never happened, right? 
and that we just need to let this go. And yes, there is such a thing as CRT. Yes, there's such a thing as Marxism. And as Willie Rice said last year at the convention, and there's also such a thing as being a jerk. But what we have to consider is that if you want to preserve the institution known as the church, especially the Reformed Evangelical Church, which I think some of the attributes that we would say that the Reformed Evangelical Movement has is that it takes scripture seriously, it takes church discipline seriously, it takes doctrine seriously, enough to say that we're going to be set apart from this and here's where we're going. Well, if you really meant that, these men didn't just come in with a different eschatological view. These men didn't just come in with maybe a slightly different soteriological view. These men came in with a Marxist heresy meant to create a revolution and to transform the body of Christ and the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness and salvation, into the gospel of vengeance. I'm sorry, but in any estimation throughout the church's history, uh, they would have done very bad things to them in the Middle Ages, obviously. But, you know, or the time of the Reformation or the Puritans. But I think in this case, some of these men are very articulate. They are very competent. They dress quite well. They know where, what tries to, to pick from Brooks Brothers and so forth. They would make great insurance agents. Um, those that are more on the, um, the newer evangelical, the neo-Calvinist groups that have all the tattoos and everything else, they would do great at changing tires and so forth. But they don't have a role in the church anymore. You've committed spiritual adultery. And the fact is this, if the church does not take this seriously and look at those men who brought this in, and I'm talking about the folks that were very high up in the gospel coalition that are somehow creeping back in into evangel the evangelical uh, reformed conference circuit again. If this is not taken seriously and there's not some sense of discipline done to at least keep them out of the pulpits and out of the teaching opportunities that they have, you will never be able to enact church discipline in your church again. Because what you've already said is the worst of what you could do to the bride of Christ, that you could molest her and sell her out to the world on a market that you did nothing about that. So how are you going to go and have church discipline with Mr. Jones' daughter because she wore a sundress to church? Or that you're going to enact church discipline with, with Mr. Smith's son because he's starting to hang out with some Arminians and said something that was sounded rather Arminian in a Sunday school? How are you going to actually enact church discipline again? You won't. You, you, you won't have the ability to do that because you've already said you don't take this seriously and the leadership protecting them and keeping their positions is more important than the purity of the church which you said that you cared so much about, that you had all your conferences about, that you made all your films about and how you criticize those that are outside of our camp within the pale of orthodoxy of Christianity, how you just destroy them nonstop. You have entire ministries against the charismatic movement, which there are a lot of disagreements there that you should be talking about, but you won't do it, do it here in your own camp? I don't trust you anymore then. And new institutions need to be founded. And, and I do want to say this. I, I really admire, um, I just got to know Kyle and John over the past two years and in a really weird situation. <laughs> and I'm like, who are these guys? And all of a sudden, the, both, both John and Kyle have proven themselves time and time again after the, over the last few years that they would be found faithful and make the right decisions. And that's why if you're here and you're not at this church and you're not churched right now in a good, sound church, please consider this church. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I am... As, as a nobody pastor in the midst of this massive country who looks to these men for leadership, who looks to these men for insight, to try to figure out how to read the culture, how to understand what's going on from a biblical worldview, um, it's, it's sad for me. It's painful to see that, that what you said earlier, we take the Bible seriously, we take sound doctrine seriously, it's painful to see, but what we really take seriously is politics. 
we take politics seriously, meaning I don't want to hurt my friend's feelings. And so I'm going to do, I'm going to not talk about things. I'm going to stay away from certain subjects and not have these conversations and not stand for the truth because, man, it could hurt my organization. It could hurt my publishing. It could hurt my this or that. And that, that kind of politics is something that I expect outside of the church. I expect that kind of thing. But to see it in the church is heartbreaking for someone like me who's just, I'm totally just, again, just, just, just a pastor, naive to a lot of these things, believing the best, choosing to trust, and then seeing this and going, wow, I'm, I'm, I, 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 it, it, was, it was shocking for me to, it, it, was, it was unsettling for me to experience these things a couple of years ago. Go, why, why isn't this being talked about? Why aren't people talking about this more? Why do they talk about everything else but this, which, is, which has the potential to, to fracture Christianity at our core like it did 100 years ago in the fundamentalist modernist controversy? It's the replay of that bad movie, and yet we already know what the result is, and yet... We're not saying anything about it. It's very unsettling for me. It's almost like, John, I think I would build on it and say almost what you're doing, if you're not willing to take those stands or you're not willing to in some way enact some sort of discipline or not allow these men to come back without serious repentance, and even then they shouldn't be allowed to come back, they can join a church, but I think as far as leadership goes, they're gone. But as soon as you allow that to happen, basically what you're doing is you're creating an entire new generation in terms of ministries, seminaries, etc., that are eunuch seminaries, eunuch institutions. They're not men with chests anymore. They're all compromisers at that point, even if they weren't directly involved. Um, so I, I think that that's the, there's a sense, and I, I sense this with you, John, and is that there's a sadness to see all this basically fall apart. It's, it's like you've, it's like in betrayal, right? Um, in a, in a relationship that you're in and you see this betrayal and there's this immense sadness and then anger. But the thing is, is that we need to take our ships to a new shore and we need to start building there and then we have to burn the ships. So you're, are you going to talk about ESV and later ESG in, in, later, uh, in later talks. Well, we can talk about the ESV and how that's probably not no, the best translation. No, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> e- ESG. Because you said we all need to know I mean, about Tim ESG. Tim Keller uses the ESV. <laughs> Although so, I think it's very poetic and lovely, so, just like the um, postmodernists would want it to be. But anyway. <laughs> so are you going to talk about ESG later, or should we talk about it now? We can talk about it later. I think that okay. uh, we might be addressing that at a special conversation that we're having at possibly at 5 p.m. Very good. That is, we can't talk about just yet. But okay, yeah. so last question then for both of you. Why are you so passionate about this? I mean, there's the high-minded reason, and I guess then there's the true reason, right? Um, I don't want to have to live in this crap. That's the true reason. I see it sucks. I don't want to go through a communist revolution and live in a tyranny. Not like I don't want to see you live there or whatever. No, I don't want to live there. I'm not going to lie. This is at the base of it, there's like a, yeah, I'm pretty, I guess, a you know, courageous, I guess, guy in some ways or whatever. But like, I don't want to have to live through that. Like I read the Gulag Archipelago. I'm, <laughs> I ain't ready for I'm a sweet summer child. I don't need any of that. I'm very tender. Um, so there is that, but I mean, ultimately, the high-minded reasons all, is, is there too, because of the sadness that you actually articulated, believe it or not, in kind of this weird despondency and almost despair, I experienced in 2016, which is when I had already kind of been criticizing this back to about 2013 and even identifying it as a religious-type movement, but um, in 2016 is when I read... If people always ask, you know, you know, what was the moment where everything kind of changed? And the moment was, it's very clear, is the, there was a paper that came out about turning the science of glaciology, studying glaciers, ice, had to be changed to become feminist. 
and I actually saw this. It got a lot of press. It had $800,000 of National Science Foundation money behind it. Um, four professors at the University of Oregon, I think, I don't, maybe all four of them aren't there, but it was from the University of Oregon anyway, wrote this paper. And I read the paper. And where you describe, I mean, I actually empathized with you tremendously just a minute ago. When you described seeing this come into the church, I saw it come into where I saw the body of truth, which was science. And I thought, how can this be? How has an academic journal with an impact factor of over seven published this assault on science? The academic literature is not supposed to assault science like this. What is going on? And I had that same kind of, I actually kind of shut myself in the room and wouldn't talk to people for about three or four days when I, I realized what I was seeing. And so I... I have, I don't know that I'm right all the time, but I have an extraordinary fealty to the truth. I, I've, uh, you were talking about not wanting to hurt people's feelings and this thing. I talked to my neighbor the day before I came out here and we were talking about kind of, as one does now, talk about the state of the world. And I said, you know, one of the problems is, is nobody's willing to fire the people that are in power because it might hurt their feelings. And he said, I've had my feelings hurt before. <laughs> and that's all he said. And it, um, I've had my feelings hurt before by the truth, in fact, a lot of times, and I've had to humble myself before that and adjust and change course and deal with the fact that I had a stupid idea that I thought was glorious that actually caused problems or pain or failure, and I had to change. And I therefore hold high esteem for the truth. I think that when we accord ourselves with the truth, we actually do optimize human success and flourishing. And so I don't want to see the truth stolen from us, both in terms of what it represents, but also in terms of what it can accomplish in the lives of individuals and communities. And so my my overarching belief that, you know, to sound cliche again, that the truth is what sets us free, um, I don't know. I'm, there's two sides to it. One is I just have this overwhelming belief that we should have access to the truth, to explore the truth, to misinform, if so be it by, you know, the failures of our best intentions, uh, to try to discover what's true, et cetera. We should have that as a, it's like the, 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 the human spirit aspires to that. That freedom is what the human, for me, that's what makes us human, is that we can do that. We have that freedom of conscience. We have that ability to have a conscience and think about it. Uh, and I don't want to say it taken away, but then on the smaller side of it, um, I don't think that I could live in a world where I don't have that aspect, and it kind of scares me. But more importantly, I also know, as I said in the first talk I gave in London, uh, when I started with Mike, um, reality is the thing you run into when your beliefs are false. So it's like I see the plane flying in the side of the mountain right now, and I'm like, either we pull up or what's going to happen is not good. And like I said, I'm tender. I'm not ready for a plane crash. I am not of the naive belief that the food is just at the grocery store, but I don't really know how it gets there. So... I don't really want to have to go find it in the lake, and I don't want to have to go find it in the woods, and I don't want to have to dig things up and think. I, I really like being able to go on my hunting trip to the Kroger. <laughs> I like the modern society that we have and the, the, the bounty that it provides, the blessings that it gives, and I'm kind of too soft to give it up. So in a world where I know that reality is a thing we're going to run into, if we go down a road of false belief, I know when you crash into reality, it's usually a bumpy ride. I have to worry about that. I went actually to my wife when I realized how bad this is, which was when we were writing the fake academic papers and got feedback from a, a journal uh, peer reviewer. I realized how bad this was, and I was like, honey, this is the makings of a genocide and the unraveling of Western civilization, and nobody's talking about it. And can I quit my job and try to talk about this full time? And she says, you have 18 months to figure out how to make money. And we got there on month yeah, number 16. Yes, we did. <laughs> Just barely. There were a couple stressful months there because yeah. my wife's 18 kind of, you know how that works if you're married. Um, 18 was an aspiration that may not have been realized in reality. But I just, how do you not care about that? How do you not care about that when you realize that that's what you're, what you're seeing?
I would say knowing, unfortunately, and being in the meetings 10, 12, 14 years ago where these things are being discussed and where they were being discussed just as common matter of fact, this is what we need to do and this is what we're going to do. And then knowing really what is to come, and, and it, it, this is why I told the 2017 you story. Um, that was me back in 2017 coming to everybody in leadership, in corporations, in faith-based organizations, etc., and pleading with people to please jump on board. We must defeat this. Because as bad as things seem like they're going right now, and I'm not saying this just to create a reaction out of you, it's going to get far worse. And, you know, where they have us going by 2030 uh, is seriously bad. And those that are in power who are pulling the strings to make these things happen, which James and I have been talking about quite a bit lately, if they see things that are starting to go against their way, they're likely to do anything. So we, as John said when he started off the talk, is that we really are in the midst of a war right now. It's an ideological war. It's fourth and fifth generational. It's ideological in its nature. There's not bombs and bullets being fired all over the place. But it's something that actually you're on the front lines of. I know where this goes. I know how the church is being used. I know how corporations that I'm on boards with are being used. I know how industries are being used to get us to the point where we end up going into this enviro-communo-fascist model that we're all spiraling to. Unfortunately, a lot of people just think that it's, oh, it's just about, well, we just need new leadership and it's going to be a lot more than that. And we're going to it's going to take all of us and it's going to take your your resolve to be willing to go through whatever we need to go through to win this back and to gain back control of some semblance that we're not going to spiral down into the utopias of the German and French, you know, <laughs> Marxist and, and, and postmodernists. And that's where we're all, we're all heading right now. We have to grab this. And so you think about all the movies that you used to watch when you were a kid. And you think, well, someday I, if I was in that heroic situation, I would do this or that. Now's your opportunity. If you're a Christian, of course, you cannot do that well without the Spirit of God. And here's the thing that you can know is that if you do the right thing according to God's word, you will have the spirit of God and they will not. They will have another spirit. And that's why they keep on kicking and punching and doing whatever they can to try to manipulate the situation, create these situations of entryism to push people out that are doing the right thing. That's why they're doing it. And so it will be painful to do the right thing. But if enough of us say, you know what? If I perish I perish. If I need to go through pain, I go through pain, but I will not do the right thing. We need, oh, I will do the right thing. I need, to, I need to think back to Luther and what he said. And don't forget what he said when he stood before the Pope's council in Worms in Germany. And when he said, here I stand. You must be able to do the same thing. Because the shoulders that future generations, I'm thinking of your kids, I'm thinking of your grandkids, I'm thinking of your nieces and nephews. The shoulders that they will stand on will be the shoulders, not of giants, but of people that just did the right thing and wanted to preserve the truth. Will you thank our panel, please?